This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. From the New Criterion Circle Lecture, we present our 2019 Distinguished Speaker, Gary Saul Morrison. Professor Morrison is the Lawrence B. Dumas Professor of the Arts and Humanities at Northwestern University. He has been writing for the New Criterion since 1998. Lenin Think on the pernicious legacy of Vladimir Lenin. The title of the lecture is our lead feature in October and Professor Morrison's 26th article for the magazine. To learn more and to join our circle, please visit newcriterion.com circle. Roger Kimball, editor and publisher, now introduces the evening. Now we are honored, we are honored and indeed we are more than honored, we are thrilled to have Professor Gary Saul Morrison with us tonight. His subject, the pernicious legacy of Vladimir Lenin, is not simply of exigent historical interest. It is also, mirable dictu, an admonitory tale about the way human credulousness conspires with evil, becoming evil in the process. Now, I say mirabile dictu because the murderous philosophy that Lenin espoused has left a ferocious butcher's bill of murder, mayhem, and immiseration wherever it has triumphed. And yet, and yet, even now, Cherka 2019, supposedly serious people are urging some variety of Lenin think upon us. How is that possible? Saul has a substantial lecture prepared for us, so I will not absorb any more time in preliminary niceties. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your support of the new criterion. And please join me in issuing a warm welcome to Gary Saul Morrison. First of all, the honor really is mine. Uh, I love this magazine. Uh, it is uniquely serious. There's nothing like it in the world and in its breadth of coverage and um, in its trenchant uh, openings each time by, by Roger, um, who has taught me a great deal um, over the years. So the title of this talk is Lenin Think. <clears throat> it's in eight parts. I tell you that so you will know at each point how much left you have to sit through. <clears throat> uh, it begins with three quotations. The first is from Vyacheslav Molotov, who was the only senior official to work for both Lenin and Stalin, and it's when he was asked to compare them. And he said, Lenin was more severe. The second quotation, uh, is from Maxim Gorky. Quote, Lenin in general loved people, but his love looked far ahead through the mists of hatred, unquote. <laughs> and the third quotation is from Lenin himself. When we are reproached with cruelty, we wonder how people can forget the most elementary Marxism. Part one is called Beyond Doctrine. 
An old Soviet joke poses the question, what was the most important world historical event of the year 1875? Answer, Lenin was five years old. <laughs> the point of the joke, of course, is that the Soviets virtually deified Lenin. <clears throat> Criticism of him was routinely referred to as blasphemy, while the old icon corners in homes and institutions were replaced by Lenin corners. Lenin museums sprung up everywhere, and institutions of every kind took his name. In addition to Leningrad, there were cities named Leninsk in Kazakhstan, Leninogorsk in Tatarstan, Leninol in Dagestan, Leninakin in Armenia, and Leninkend, Leninavan, and at least four different Lenin Abads. On a visit to the Caucasus, I remember being surprised at seeing Mayakovsky's famous verses about Lenin inscribed on a mountaintop. Quote, Lenin lived. Lenin lives. Lenin will live. The mausoleum, where his body is preserved, served as the regime's most sacred shrine. As we approach the 150th anniversary of Lenin's birth, understanding him grows ever more important. Despite the fall of the Soviet Union, Leninist ways of thinking continue to spread, especially among Western radicals who have never read a word of Lenin. And so my topic today is not just Lenin, and not just Leninism, the official philosophy of the USSR, but also the very style of thought that Lenin pioneered. Call it Lenin Think. Lenin did more than anyone else to shape the last hundred years. He invented a form of government we have come to call totalitarian, which rejected in principle the idea of any private sphere outside of state control. To establish this power, he invented the one-party state, a term that previously would have seemed self-contradictory since a party was, by definition, a part. Lenin himself spoke of, quote, a party of a wholly different order, unquote. An admirer of the French Jac Jacobins, he believed that state power had to be based on sheer terror. And so he also created the terrorist state. Steven Pinker has recently argued that the world has been getting less bloodthirsty. The Mongols, after all, destroyed entire cities. But the Mongols murdered other people. What is new and uniquely horrible about the Soviets and their successors is that they directed their fury at their own people. The Russian Empire lost more people in World War I than any other country but still more died under Lenin. His war against the peasants, for instance, took more lives than the combat between the Reds and the Whites. And numbers do not tell the whole story. Under the Third Reich, an ethnic German loyal to the regime did not usually have to fear arrest. But Lenin pioneered, and Stalin greatly expanded, a policy in which arrests were entirely arbitrary. That is, 
true terror. By the time of the Great Terror of 1936 to 38, millions of entirely innocent people were arrested, often by quota for a given area. Literally, no one was safe. The party itself was an especially dangerous place to be, and the NKVD, the secret police, was constantly arresting its own members, a practice that was also true of its predecessor, the Cheka, which Lenin founded almost immediately, I think within the week, after the Bolshevik coup. NKVD interrogators who suspected that they were to be arrested often committed suicide since they had no illusions about what arrest entailed. They had practiced exquisite forms of torture and humiliation on prisoners. After mid-1937, torture was required of all people arrested. And not only on the prisoners, but on the prisoners' colleagues, friends, and families. Member of a family of a traitor to the fatherland was itself a criminal category. And whole camps were set up for wives of enemies of the people. Never before had such practices defined a state. For good reason, many have traced these practices to Lenin's doctrines. In his view, Marx's greatest contribution was not the idea of the class struggle, but the dictatorship of the proletariat. And as far back as 1906, Lenin defined dictatorship as, quote, nothing other than power which is totally unlimited by any laws, totally unrestrained by absolutely any rules, and based directly on force, unquote. He argued that a revolutionary party must be composed entirely of professional revolutionaries, drawn mainly from the intelligentsia, and subject to absolute discipline and a readiness to do literally anything the leadership demanded. These and other Leninist ideas played a key role, but they derived from a specific Leninist way of thinking, and that is what I want to focus on today. I know this way of thinking in my bones. I'm myself a pink diaper baby, and I remember being taught this way of thinking, taken for granted by all right-thinking people. Memoirs of many ex-communists, from David Horowitz to Richard Wright, confirmed that more than doctrines, it was the Leninist style of thought that defined the difference between an insider and an outsider. And that way of thought is very much with us. Part two is called Who Whom. And it also begins with a quotation from Lenin in his instructions to authorities in Nizhny Novgorod in August 1918, quote, introduce at once, I emphasize the word seat, italicize this, introduce at once mass terror, execute and deport hundreds of prostitutes, drunken soldiers, ex-officers, etc. The etc. is my favorite part. Lenin regarded all interactions as zero-sum. To use the phrase he made famous, the fundamental question is always who whom. Who dominates whom? 
who does what to whom, ultimately who annihilates whom. To the extent that we gain, you lose. Contrast this view with the one taught in basic microeconomics. Whenever there is a non-force transaction, both sides benefit or they would not make the exchange. For the seller, the money is worth more than the goods he sells, and for the buyer, the goods are worth more than the money. Lenin's hatred of the market and his attempt to abolish it entirely during war communism derived from the opposite idea, that all buying and selling is necessarily exploitative. When Lenin speaks of profiteering or speculation, which he made capital crimes, he is referring to every transaction, however small. Peasant bagmen selling produce were shot. Basic books on negotiation teach that you can often do better than split the difference since people have different concerns. Both sides can come out ahead, but not for the Soviets, whose negotiating stance John F. Kennedy once paraphrased as, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is negotiable. For us, the word politics means a process of give and take, but for Lenin, it's we take and you give. From this it follows that one must take maximum advantage of one's position. If the enemy is weak enough to be destroyed, and one stops simply at one's initial demands, one is objectively helping the enemy, which makes one a traitor. Of course, one might also simply be insane. Long before Brezhnev began incarcerating dissidents in madhouses, Lenin was so appalled at his foreign minister, Boris Chicherin, recommended an unnecessary concession to American loan negotiators that Lenin pronounced him mad not metaphorically, and demanded he be forcibly committed. Quote, we will be fools if we do not immediately and forcibly send him to a sanatorium, unquote. Such thinking automatically favors extreme solutions. If there is one sort of person Lenin truly hates more than any other, it's, to use some of his more printable adjectives, the squishy, squeamish, spineless, dull-witted liberal reformer. In philosophical issues, too, there can never be a middle ground. If you are not a materialist, in precisely Lenin's interpretation, you are an idealist, and idealism is simply disguised religion supporting the bourgeoisie. The following statement from his most famous book, What is to be Done, is typical, and here, you know, the italics that I emphasize are Lenin's. The only choice is either the bourgeois or the socialist ideology. There is no middle course, for humanity has not created a third ideology, and moreover, in a society torn by class antagonisms, there can never be a non-class or above-class ideology. Hence, to belittle the socialist ideology in any way to turn away from it in the slightest degree means to strengthen bourgeois ideology, unquote. There is either rule by the bourgeoisie or dictatorship of the proletariat. Quote, every solution that offers a middle path is a deception, 
or an expression of the dull-wittedness of the petty bourgeois Democrats, unquote. Contrary to the wishes even of other Bolsheviks, Lenin categorically rejected the idea of a broad socialist coalition government. He was immensely relieved when the short-life coalition with the left socialist revolutionaries collapsed. Immediately after seizing power, he declared the left liberal <coughs> cadets, constitutional Democrats, outside the law, leading to the lynching of two of their ex-ministers in a Petersburg hospital. He would soon arrest Mensheviks and the most numerous group of radicals, the socialist revolutionaries, famed for countless assassinations of czarist officials. We think of show trials as Stalinist, but Lenin staged a show trial of socialist revolutionary leaders in 1922. By the same token, Lenin always insisted on the most violent solutions. <clears throat> those who do not understand him mistake his ideas for those of radical like the Russian anarchist Prince Peter Kropotkin, who argued that violence was permitted when necessary. That squishy formulation suggests that other solutions would be preferable if possible. But for Lenin, maximal violence was the default position. He was constantly rebuking subordinates for not using enough force, for restraining mobs from lynchings, and for hesitating to shoot randomly chosen hostages. One could almost say that force had a mystical attraction for Lenin. He had workers drafted into a labor army where any shirking or lateness, a few minutes late to work, was punished by sentence to a concentration camp. Yes, Bolsheviks used the term concentration camp from the start and did so with pride. Until economic collapse forced Lenin to adopt the new economic policy, he demanded that grain not be purchased from peasants, but requisitioned at gunpoint. Naturally, peasants, Lenin called recalcitrant peasants kulaks, rebelled all over Russia. In response to one such kulak uprising, Lenin issued the following order. I quote, <clears throat> the kulak uprising in your five districts must be crushed without pity. One. Hang, and I mean hang so that people can see not less than 100 known kulaks, rich men, bloodsuckers. Two, publish their names. Three, take all their grain away from them. Four, identify hostages. Do this so that for hundreds of miles around, the people can see, tremble, know, and cry. Yours Lenin, P.S., find tougher people. Dmitry Volkogonov, the first biographer with access to the secret Lenin archives, concluded that for Lenin, violence was a goal in itself. He quotes Lenin in 1908, recommending, quote, real nationwide terror, which invigorates the country and through which the great French Revolution achieved glory." Unquote. Lenin constantly recommended that people be shot, quote, without pity or 
quote, exterminated mercilessly. The philosopher Leszek Kolakowski wondered wryly what it would mean to exterminate people mercifully. <laughs> exterminate is a term used for vermin, and long before the Nazis described Jews as ungeziefert, vermin, Lenin routinely called for, quote, the cleansing of Russia's soil of all harmful insects, of scoundrels, fleas, bedbugs, the rich, and so on, unquote. Lenin worked by a principle of anti-empathy, and this approach was to define Soviet ethics. I know of no other society, except those modeled on the one Lenin created, where school children were taught that mercy, kindness, and pity are vices. After all, these feelings might lead one to hesitate shooting a class enemy or denouncing one's parents. The word conscience went out of use, replaced by consciousness in the sense of Marxist-Leninist ideological consciousness. During Stalin's great purges, a culture of denunciation reigned, but it was Lenin who taught, quote, a good communist is also a good Czechist secret policeman. Part three is called <clears throat> The Abbey of Telem. A special logic governs the Leninist approach to morality, legality, and rights. In his famous address to the youth leagues, Lenin complains that bourgeois thinkers have slanderously denied that Bolsheviks have any ethics. In fact, I quote, we reject any morality based on extra-human and extra-class concepts. We say that this is a deception. We say that morality is entirely subordinated to the interests of the proletariat's class struggle. That is why we say that to us there is no such thing as a morality that stands outside human society. That is a fraud. To us, morality is subordinated to the interests of the proletariat's class struggle. When people tell us about morality, we say to a communist, all morality lies in this united discipline and conscious mass struggle against the exploiters, unquote. In short, Bolshevik morality holds that whatever contributes to Bolshevik success is moral, <clears throat> whatever hinders it is immoral. Now imagine someone saying, my detractors claim I have no morals, but that is sheer slander. On the contrary, I have a very strict moral code from which I never deviate. Look out for number one. We might reply, the whole point of a moral code is to restrain you from acting only out of self-interest. Morality begins with number two. A moral code that says you must do what you regard as your self-interest is no moral code at all. The same is true for a code that says the Communist Party is morally bound to do whatever it regards as in its interest. Rabelais' pleasure-seeking utopia, the Abbey of Telem, was governed, like all abbeys, by a rule. In this case, however, the rule was an anti-rule. Do as you wish. People were to be restrained from yielding to any restraints. Ever since, such self-canceling imperatives have been called 
Telemite commands. Bolshevik legality was also Telemite. If by law one means a code that binds the state as well as the individual, specifies what is and what is not permitted, and eliminates arbitrariness, then Lenin entirely rejected law as bourgeois. He expressed utter contempt for the, principle, for the principles no crime without law and no punishment without a crime. Recall that he defined the dictatorship of the proletariat as rule based entirely on force, absolutely unrestrained by any law. His more naive followers imagine, imagine that rule by sheer terror would cease when Bolshevik hold on power was secure, or when the new economic policy relaxed restrictions on trade. But Lenin made a point of disillusioning them. Quote, it is the biggest mistake to think that the NEP will put an end to the terror. We shall return to the terror and to economic terror, he wrote, unquote. When D.I. Korsky, the People's Commissariat of Justice, a Commissar of Justice, was formulating the first legal code, Lenin demanded that terror and arbitrary use of power be written into the code itself. He insisted, quote, the law should not abolish terror. It should be substantiated and legalized in principle without evasion or embellishment, unquote. So far as I know, never before had the law prescribed lawlessness. Do as you wish or else. Lenin had, asc had ascribed the fall of the Paris Commune to the failure to eliminate all law and so the Soviet state was absolutely forbidden from exercising any restraint on arbitrary use of power. Indeed, officials were punished for such restraint, which Lenin called impermissible slackness, and Stalin would deem lack of vigilance. The same logic applies to rights. On paper, the Soviet Constitution of 1936 guaranteed more rights than any other state in the world. I recall a Soviet citizen telling me that people in the USSR had absolute freedom of speech, so long as they didn't lie. I thought of this curious concept of freedom when one of my recent students defended complete freedom of speech except for hate speech. And hate speech, if you probed, included anything he disagreed with. Whatever did not seem hateful was actually a dog whistle. As far back as 1919, Soviet parlance distinguished between purely formal law and what was called, quote, the material determination of the crime, unquote. A crime was not an action or omission specified in the formal code because, quote, every socially dangerous act or omission was automatically criminal. For example, Article 1 of the Civil Code of October 31st, 1922, laid down that civil rights, I quote again, are protected by the law unless they are exercised in contradiction to their social and economic purposes, unquote. Like the material definition of crime, the concept of purposefulness, celo obraznost, 
created a system of telemite rights. The state was absolutely prohibited from interfering with your rights unless it wanted to. Part four is called Lenin's Speak. Lenin's language, no less than his ethics, served as a model taught in Soviet schools and recommended in books with titles like Lenin's Language and On Lenin's Polemical Art. In Lenin's view, a true revolutionary did not establish the correctness of his beliefs by appealing to evidence or logic, as if there were some standard of truthfulness above social classes. Rather, one engaged in, quote, blackening an opponent's mug so well that it takes him ages to get it clean again, unquote. Nikolai Valentinov, a Bolshevik who knew Lenin well before becoming disillusioned, reports him saying, quote, there is only one answer to revisionism, smash its face in, unquote. When Mensheviks objected to Lenin's personal attacks, he replied frankly that his purpose was not to convince, but to destroy his opponent. In work after work, Lenin did not offer arguments refuting other social democrats, but brands them as renegades from Marxism. Marxists who disagreed with his naive epistemology were, quote, philosophic scum, unquote. Object to his brutality, and your arguments are, quote, moralizing vomit, unquote. You can see traces of this approach in the advice of Saul Alinsky, who cites Lenin to, quote, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, unquote. Compulsive underlining, name-calling, and personal invective hardly exhaust the ways in which Lenin's prose assaults the reader. He does not just advance a claim, he insists that it is absolutely certain and, for good measure, says the same thing again in other words. It is absolutely certain, beyond any possible doubt, perfectly clear to anyone not dull-witted. Any alliance with a democratic bourgeoisie can only be short-lived, he explains. Quote, this is beyond doubt. Hence, the absolute necessity of a separate, strictly class party of social democrats. All this is beyond the slightest possible doubt. Unquote. Nothing is true unless it is absolutely, indubitably so. If a position is wrong, it is entirely and irredeemably so. If something must be done, it must be done immediately, without delay. Party representatives are to make, quote, no concessions whatsoever. These phrases are constantly repeated. Under Lenin's direction, the party demanded, quote, the dissolution of all groups, without exception, formed on the basis of one platform or another, unquote. It was not enough just to summarily shoot kulaks. They had, quote, to be shot on the spot without trial, unquote. A phrase that in one brief decree, he managed to use in each of its six numbered commands before concluding, quote, this order is to be carried out strictly, mercilessly, unquote. You'd think that was clear enough already. No concessions, compromises, exceptions, or acts of leniency. Everything must be totally uniform, absolutely the same, unqualifiedly unqualified. 
At one point, he claims that the views of Marx and Engels are, quote, completely identical, unquote, as if they might have been incompletely identical. Critics objected that Lenin argued by mere assertion. He disproved a position simply by showing it contradicted what he believed. In his attack on the epistemology of the philosophers Mach and Avenarius, for instance, every argument contrary to dialectical materialism is rejected for that reason alone. Valentinov, who saw Lenin frequently when he was crafting this treatise, reports that Lenin at most glanced through their work for a few hours. It was easy enough to attribute to them views they did not hold, associate them with disreputable people they had never heard of, or ascribe political purposes they had never imagined. These were Lenin's usual techniques, and he made no bones about it. Valentinov was appalled that both Lenin and Plekhanov, who was the first Russian Marxist, insisted that there was no need to understand opposing views before denouncing them, <clears throat> since the very fact that they were opposing views proved, proved them wrong already. And what was wrong served the enemy, and so was criminal. He quotes Lenin, quote, Marxism is a monolithic conception of the world. It does not tolerate dilution and vulgarization by means of various insertions and additions. Plekhanov once said to me about a critic of Marxism, first let's stick the convict's badge on him, and then after that we'll examine his case. And I think that we must stick the convict's badge on anyone and everyone who tries to undermine Marxism, even if we don't go on to examine his case. That's how every sound revolutionary should react. When you see a stinking heap on the road, you don't have to, pro to poke around in it to see what it is. Your nose tells you it's shit, and you give it a wide berth, unquote. Lenin's words took my breath away, Valentina recalls. I had the same reaction when I first heard a student explain that a view had to be wrong simply because it appeared on Fox News. Opponents objected that Lenin lied without compunction. And it is easy to find quotations in which he says, as he did to Bolshevik leader Karl Radek, who told you a historian has to establish the truth? Yes, we are contradicting what we said before, he told Radek, and when it is useful to reverse positions again, we will. Orwell caught this aspect of Leninism. Oceania was at war with East Asia, Therefore, Oceania had always been at war with East Asia. And yet, the concept of lying, if one stops there, does not reach the heart of the matter. In his novella, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, Tolstoy remarks that, contrary to appearances, the hero was not a toady. Rather, quote, he was attracted to people of high station as a fly is drawn to the light, unquote. A toady decides to toady, but Ivan Ilyich had no need to make such a decision. In much the same way, a true Leninist does not decide whether to lie. He automatically says what is most useful with no reflection necessary. That is why he can show no visible signs of mendacity, perhaps even pass a lie detector test. La Rochefoucauld famously said that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. 
But a true Bolshevik is not even a hypocrite. Western scholars who missed this aspect of Leninism made significant errors. For example, they estimated the size of the Soviet economy by assuming that official figures were distorted and so they made appropriate adjustments. But as Robert Conquest points out, they were not distorted. They were invented. The Soviets did not find out the truth and then exaggerate. They often did not know the truth themselves. In 1984, Winston Smith hears that 50 million pairs of boots were produced that year and reflects that for all he knows, no boots at all were produced. Orwell, who had never studied the Soviet economy, grasped a point that escaped experts because he understood Lenin think. Part five is called partiness. Lenin did not just invent a new kind of party. He also laid the basis for what would come to be known in official parlance as partinost, literally partiness, in the sense of party-mindedness. Arthur Kessler understood part of partinost when he described a communist confessing to fantastic crimes because loyalty to the party trumped everything else. If the party needed one to confess to spying for the Poles, Japanese, and Germans at the same time, while conspiring with Trotsky to murder Stalin and spread typhus among pigs, all while one was already in prison, a true party-minded Bolshevik would do so. In his celebrated Catechism of a Revolutionary, the 19th century uh, terrorist Sergei Nechayev whose story inspired Dostoevsky's novel, The Possessed, writes that a true revolutionary, quote, has no interests, no habits, no property, not even a name. Everything in him is wholly absorbed by a single exclusive interest, a single thought, a single passion, the revolution, unquote. Nechayev and his contemporary Pyotr Tkachev established a particular tradition of revolutionaries to which Lenin traced his lineage. The true party member cares for nothing but the party. It is his family, his community, his church. And according to Marxism-Leninism, everything it did was guaranteed to be correct. Trotsky, forced to reverse one of his positions to conform to the party line, explained, quote, None of us desires or is able to dispute the will of the party. Clearly, the party is always right. We can only be right with and by the party, for history has provided no other way of being in the right. If the party adopts a decision which one or other of us thinks unjust, he will say, just or unjust, it is my party, and I will support the consequences of the decision to the end." Unquote. Even this much-quoted statement, though, does not get Partinist quite right, since immediately after affirming that history guarantees the party's infallibility, Trotsky speaks of supporting the party even when it is wrong. His ally, the prominent Bolshevik Yuri Pyatikov, did better. When Valentinov happened to meet Pyatikov in Paris, 
he reproached him for cowardice in renouncing his former Trotskyite views. Piatikov replied by explaining the Leninist concept of the party. Quote, according to Lenin, the Communist Party is based on the principle of coercion which doesn't recognize any limitations or inhibitions. And the central idea of this principle of boundless coercion is not coercion itself, but the absence of any limitation whatsoever, moral, political, and even physical, as far as that goes. Such a party is capable of achieving miracles and doing things which no other collective of men could achieve. A real communist is a man who was raised by the party and had absorbed its spirit deeply enough to become a miracle man." Piatikov grasped Lenin's idea that coercion is not a last resort, but the first principle of party action. Changing human nature, producing boundless prosperity, overcoming death itself, all these miracles could be achieved because the party was the first organization ever to pursue coercion without limits. In one treatise, 1952, Stalin corrects the widespread notion that the laws of nature are not binding on Bolsheviks. He explains they are. And it is not hard to see how this kind of thinking took root. And given an essentially mystical faith in coercion, it is not hard to see how imaginative forms of torture became routine in Soviet justice. Piatikov drew significant conclusions from this concept of the party. Quote, for such a party, a true Bolshevik will readily cast out from his mind ideas to which he has believed for years. A true Bolshevik has submerged his personality in the collective, the party, to such an extent that he can make the necessary effort to break away from his own opinions and convictions and can honestly agree with the party that is, that is the test of a true Bolshevik. There could be no life for him outside the ranks of the party and he would be ready to believe that black was white and white was black if the party required it. In order to become one with this great party, he would fuse himself with it, abandon his own personality so that there was no particle left inside him which was not at one with the party." Unquote. Did Orwell have this statement in mind when O'Brien gets Winston Smith to believe that twice two is five? In 1936, Piatikov asked the party secretariat to censure him for not having revealed his wife's Trotskyite connections. To prove his partinost, he offered to testify against her and then, after her condemnation, to shoot her himself. Piatikov was himself shot. Part six is called The Nature of Leninist Belief. Partiness does not entail merely affirming that black is white, but actually believing it. The wisest students of Bolshevik thinking have wondered, what does it mean to believe, truly believe, what one does not believe? Many former communists describe their belated recognition that experienced party members do not seem to believe what they profess. In his memoir, American Hunger, much of which is devoted to his experiences in the American Communist Party, Richard Wright describes how he would point out that the party sometimes acted contrary to its convictions. 
or in the name of helping black people, actually hurt them. What most amazed Wright was that he usually could get no explanation for such actions at all. You don't understand, he was constantly told. And the very fact that he asked such questions proved that he didn't. It gradually dawned on him that the party takes stances not because it cares about them, although it may, but because it is useful for the party to do so. Doing so may help recruit new members, as its stance on race had gotten right to join. But after a while, a shrewd member learned, without having been explicitly told, that loyalty belonged not to an issue, not even to justice broadly conceived, but to the party itself. Issues would be raised or dismissed as needed. My mother left the American Communist Party in 1939 in response to the Hitler-Stalin pact. But her friends who remained were able, like Pyotrkov, to turn on a dime. One morning, the daily worker followed Pravda and described Nazis as true friends of the working class. The next, nothing too strong could be said against them. Crucially, and as Orwell dramatized in 1984, there was never an admission that any change had taken place. When it suddenly dawned on them that issues were, were pretexts, Wright and some others like him faced a choice. Usually, however, there was no sudden realization, and so no choice was required. I speak from memory now. What happens is something like this. When a criticism of the true ideology is advanced, or when embarrassing facts come out, everyone learns a particular answer. One neither believes nor disbelieves the answer. One demonstrates one's loyalty by saying it. It is interesting to be present when the answer is still being rehearsed. Gradually, one acquires a little mental library of such canned answers, and the use of them signals to others in the know that you are one of them. If this process took place often enough in childhood, the moment of decision lies in the remote past if it ever happened at all. For those who joined as adults, there was social pressure to accept one more explanation. Imagining not accepting today's charge against Trump or Chick-fil-A. Why stop now? Wright is unusual in that for him, the process became acute and demanded he address it. In his History of Marxism, Kolokovsky explains some puzzling aspects of Bolshevik practice in these terms. Everyone understands why Bolsheviks shot liberals, socialist revolutionaries, Mensheviks, and Trotskyites. But what, he asked, was the point of turning the same fury on the party itself, especially on its most loyal Stalinists, who accepted Leninist-Stalinist ideology without question. Kolokovsky observes that it is precisely the loyalty to the ideology that was the problem. Anyone who believed in the ideology might question the leader's conformity to it. He might recognize that the Marxist-Leninist party was acting against Marxism-Leninism as the party itself defined it. Or he might compare Stalin's statements today with Stalin's statements yesterday. Kolokovsky observes, quote, the citizen belongs to the state and must have no other loyalty, not even to the state ideology, unquote. That might seem strange to Westerners, but it is not surprising to anyone who knows a system of this type from within. 
All deviations from the party line, all challenges to the leadership, appealed to official ideology. And so anyone who truly believed the ideology was suspect. Quote, the Great Purge, therefore, was designed to destroy such ideological links as still existed within the party, to convince its members that they had no ideology or loyalty except to the latest orders from on high. Loyalty to Marxist ideology as such is still, Klokowski's writing in 1978, a crime and a source of deviation of all kinds, unquote. The true Leninist did not even believe in Leninism. Part seven is called The Other Foot. I know of no other political ideology that entails such a conception of belief. When I was a young associate professor teaching comparative literature, whose faculty were at each other's throats, I remarked to one colleague who called herself a Marxist-Leninist that it only made things worse when she told obvious falsehoods in department meetings. Surely such unprincipled behavior must bring discredit to your own position, I pleaded. Her reply brought me back to my childhood. I quote it word for word. You stick to your principles, and I'll stick to mine. From a Leninist perspective, a liberal, a Christian, or any type of idealist only ties his hands by refraining from doing whatever works. She meant, we Leninists will win because we know better than to do that. Even Westerners who regard themselves as realists have only taken a few baby steps towards a true Leninist position. They are all the more vulnerable for imagining they have an unclouded view. Recently, Attorney General William Barr asked how his critics would have reacted had the FBI secretly interfered with the Obama campaign. What if the shoe were on the other foot, he asked. From a Leninist perspective, this question demonstrates befuddlement. In his book, on in his book Terrorism and Communism, Trotsky imagines the high priests of liberalism, as he calls them, asking how Bolshevik use of arbitrary power differs from czarist practices. Trotsky sneers, I quote, you do not understand this, holy men. We shall explain it to you. The terror of czarism was directed against the proletariat. Our extraordinary commissions shoot landlords, capitalists, and generals. Do you grasp this distinction? For us communists, it's quite sufficient, unquote. What is reprehensible for them is proper for us, and that's all there is to it. For a Leninist, the shoe is never on the other foot because he has no other foot. <clears throat> and the last section is called the spectrum of awareness. When I detect Leninist ways of thinking today, <clears throat> people respond, surely you don't think all those social justice warriors are Leninists. Of course not. The whole point of Leninism is that only a few people must understand what is going on. That was the key insight <clears throat> of Lenin's tract, What is to be Done. When Leninism is significant, there will always be a spectrum going from those who really understand to those who just practice the appropriate responses to those who are entirely innocent. The real questions are, is, is there such a spectrum now and if so, how do we locate people on it? And if there is such a spectrum, what do we do about it? 
I have no space to address such questions here. My point is that they need to be asked. Thank you. Thank you, Saul. I think we have time for just a few questions. Thank, thank you very much for the stimulating lecture. At one point, you seemed to suggest that Lenin as a thinker was shaped by other 19th century Russian revolutionary thinkers. But the conclusion seems to be that Lenin really is breaking the mold. So could you say a little bit about his originality as a thinker, and whether you think maybe he should be understood as a Marxist thinker, as a thinker in the Russian revolutionary tradition, or as somebody who's just radically breaking with the past, a man? Yeah, it's a great question that I, I, I worry about. Um, I guess my answer, tentative answer, would be all three. Um, he takes one aspect of the Russian revolutionary tradition, the one that insists on not being a mass party, not even trying to convince most people, but simply <clears throat> seizing power by a small group of people in, in a coup, by, by force, and then keeping power by terror. He takes that tradition, and he fuses it with Marxism, as he discovers it, and reinterprets Marxism uh, in that way. That was the basis of his uh, argument with dimensions, who didn't interpret They wanted a mass crime. Um, but he also adds a good deal um, of his own. And he, he is, in some sense, a truly original thinker in pushing this view to its limits. You know, that one of the principles of uh, Marxist-Leninist philosophy <clears throat> comes out of Hegel is there's a, at a certain point quantity changes in quality. If you pursue something, you know, at some point, the standard example is if you heat water enough, you don't get hotter water, you get steam. Right? Well, at, if you push this particular tradition far enough, you, you get Leninism. Which is so, this, the steam of ideology. It's made of the same material as steam is, but it's something of an order of its own. And what was amazing to me is that Dostoevsky actually saw this possibility, pushing it that far, because it's described in amazing detail in The Possessed. Uh, and of course, when he did that, no one had pushed it that far. But he just, well, what if one did, he asked, and he got it right. So I don't know, but I hope that answers you. I recall that Lenin didn't think Stalin should be his heir or something, something like that. What can, can you speculate if Lenin had lived longer or if his designee had been his successor rather than Stalin, what our world would have been like or would it maybe have been the same? Well, what you're referring to is the so-called Lenin Testament, uh, which is a very dubious document because it was written after he had massive strokes. And he couldn't hold a pen. He couldn't even talk. Um, his wife claimed, Krupster claimed, that somehow she understood his, what he was trying to say, and she wrote it down. So it's already fairly dubious. Um, in it, if it is his, Stalin had been rather 
figuring that this guy is never going to recover, rude to him and Krupska, his wife. Uh, and so in the document, he accuses Stalin of being rude, which is not the worst sin in the world. Right? <coughs> um, but he has something nasty to say about all the other people in, in the party, too. So it's hard to say you know, who he would have wanted. Um, my feeling is that what happened was given in the, in the structure of the situation. Once you have the Leninist view of power, there's nothing, there's no principle for not taking it to its extreme. See, when you have a situation where things are going in a certain direction, you have to ask, is there a point at which you can't go any further because there'd be some opposition or the principle's exhausted itself? If there isn't such a principle, or there isn't such a force that would stop it, you have to assume it's going to go to the extreme. Which is say what happened in you know, the French Revolution too. Um, so I, I think you know, Stalin, there's basically no difference um, between the two of them, except that you know, Lenin started having strokes. You know, first of all, he only died in 1924, the last couple of years, he was more or less incapacitated. He didn't have enough time to do um, what Stalin did. Um, but that's really not, I, I don't see any substantial difference between the two. And when Stalin described himself, his slogan was, Stalin is Lenin today. And I think that's right. I mean, that's, that's correct. Let me also thank you, Professor. One thing that occurs to most of us, I'm sure, tonight, is that when we look at today's political figures, we hear ameliorative, apparently benevolent discussion, which then draws in millions of voters. You've described what Lenin thought on the inside. How did he speak to the Russian masses? And I'm wondering if in 1917 or thereafter, he may have spoken to the broad public in the ways that some of today's uh, erstwhile future presidents speak to us. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Um, I think how he, he did claim to believe that um, every nationality of the former Russian Empire could be independent. Um, in practice, what he meant was first, we said this today, first we Sovietize it, then we'll let them decide. Which means, of course, they'll decide not to go. Um, and for the peasants, while his power was insecure, um, he claimed to want to give peasants all, all land, give them everything they wanted. Um, but the moment he had power, he could revoke that. Um, you say what you need to say, to gain, to gain or hold power. Um, and I, I think if you're thinking of people you know, in the US or Britain um, today, I don't think the right question is, does this or that candidate believe what he or she is saying or is it just window dressing? In some sense, it doesn't really matter. The, the logic of the situation pushes to the extreme. Someone who didn't want to go to the extreme, could be pushed to the extreme if the logic was pushing him or her that way. And the question is, 
then what would happen? Would there be resistance in that case? And that's the question to answer. Is there something if that push to the extreme happened that would prevent it from going too far? That, that, that's a, not whether this particular person wanted to go there. Because even someone didn't want to go there could be pushed. We see it with, you know, if you don't take an extreme enough position, you'll be attacked and you'll take the extreme position. That's, that's the part that disturbs me. Because even the most extreme people will be pushed further. That that's and there's no limit, is, is the point, unless there's a limit. And I don't know, I, I genuinely don't know, is there a limit? And would, would that happen at, at some point? I don't know, but that's what worries me, that I, that I don't know. <clears throat> you are a great scholar of uh, Russian literature. How could a people that produce such literature also produce Latin? Yes, that's the thing with the book I'm writing. Um, <laughs> let, let me give you a version of it what I think. If you look at the 19th century, <clears throat> say starting about 1860, when the term intelligentsia is coined, it's a word we get from Russian. But it, in Russian, it, it doesn't mean intellectuals or educated people. It meant people, you had to dress a certain way, you had to identify first as a member of the intelligentsia, and you had to be a revolutionary of some sort you must be an atheist and materialist. So, for example, no one would have called Tolstoy, who believed in God and used his title of Count, the intelligence. Just couldn't be further. The intelligentsia pushed ideas to their extreme and put questions in the most extreme form. And then the writers who were called great writers reacted to that and wrote philosophical novels. They're sometimes called uh, theoretical novels, but they're actually anti-theoretical novels. They're all about the dangers of theology and theorizing. And so you could describe the history of Russian culture from that point to the revolution as the argument between the intelligentsia and the great writers, let's say Lenin and Trotsky and Israel on one side, and <clears throat> Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Chekhov on the other. And then what happens in 1917 is that the intelligentsia wins. But the reason that the writers are so great is that they see the implications of ideas, one reason. And they can address them in a way that English and French writers haven't seen the ideas taken to that extreme. Um, they can address them directly and produce these, these wonderful thought-provoking thought works. So it's an argument, I think, between the two, uh, the two traditions. Thirty years after Lenin died, uh, with Stalin's death, one could argue that Leninism died, at least to the very different form. Did it die because of its own faults in uh, self-contained faults, or did it die because of the absence of an individual who could assume the mantle of Stalin or Lenin? You know, I'm not sure that it did die in 1953. It obviously died eventually. Um, <coughs> Even under you know, Lenin and 
Stalin, there were, there was a pendulum swing. Like Lenin starts out trying to kill all as many peasants as he might object to do it. But he retreats into war, in, in, from war communism into the military policy. And there's this sort of back and forth that, that, that takes place. When reality hits too hard, then you back off a little bit. And I, I kind of wonder whether it would happen. Happened in 1983 when Stalin died, it's kind of that backing wall. They didn't give up the belief in the ideology. I mean, even when we think of Khrushchev as a liberal, because um, we see Stalin's campaign, but he's the one who started persecuting religion again, when Stalin had laid off for the reasons I told you, uh, in order, because he sincerely believed in Marxism and Leninism, and you had to wipe out religious belief. And there was nothing in the system that would have prevented it from making it another term. Back. So I think what you've got is a long-term version of the new economic policy, but had it lasted longer, the opposite might have happened. Until the whole thing, of course, collapsed. All good things must come to an end. Please join me in.